Well, hey, everybody, welcome to week five of the CSF Curriculum Podcast. We are covering Genesis 2 and 3, and there is so, so, so much to cover here. And so we are going to get right to it. One Some of the most foundational stuff in all of Scripture. So, CJ, let's jump in. Let's start with Genesis 2. And why don't you tell me uh, and tell us uh, some things you see there? Genesis 2 is interesting because it's uh, one of the three chapters where everything is going right. And so I think it's important to pair Genesis 2 with Genesis 3. We kind of jump to the fall pretty quickly a lot of times when we go read a passage like this. But looking at Genesis 2 gives you a hint and a picture of what life is supposed to look like. And the first thing that pops out to me when I read Genesis 2 um, is the goodness of embodiment. In Genesis 1, you have this long poem where God is uh, recounting the creation of the universe. But then Genesis 2 is really where it keys in on the human. And we see the the Mm -hmm. human made by God, Mm -hmm. first formed from the dust with his hands, kind of this radical, you know, we're made of stuff, the matter. Uh, He names the dirt, you know, we're made of dirt. Adam's name comes from the Hebrew word for, for earth. And so you see this radical affirmation of being embodied, which is pretty different than what a lot of religions back then would look like. And in a lot of ways, I think it's pretty different than what our culture looks like. We're a culture of iPhones and digital and brain, and we're not really a a culture that appreciates uh, embodiment, I think, as much in in a lot of ways. But we see that called good. Um, And so there's a deep, I think, vocational calling in how we treat our bodies, how we look at our bodies, and how we use our bodies. So that's the first thing that pops up to me is just the good of embodiment. It's an essential part of who we are. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been this misunderstanding for many years that, and going back to, gosh, even the earliest church, that some some teachers came in and said, hey, you know, what's important is your spirit, you know, kind of spirituality. But Christian spirituality is this, uh, it's an interwovenness. I mean, you know, we've got hybrid cars now. Those are kind of all the rage with with a lot of people, and and understandably so, for their great gas mileage that they get. But but we are the kind of original hybrid creation. I mean, we are, we're, yes, we are. There is this spirit to us. We are not mere physical things like rocks or, or even, you know, as Genesis talks about, even like other animals, there's some things that distinguish us, but, but there is a physical nature to us. We, we are both. It's like, you know, and, and I've often pointed out and scripture points out is that, you know, because we are interwoven creatures, you know, hybrid, part spirit, part physicality, that what we do with our body matters. There is deep uh, moral uh, and spiritual implications uh, to what we do with our bodies, as well as, you know, when, when you mistreat your body, I mean, if you, if I, I stay up late at night, you know, playing chess on my, you know, on my computer or whatever. And I get up early the next day because kids tend to get up early and I'm tired. I'm probably not going to feel God in the same way. If I've had, if I've had a bad night of sleep or whatever, just, just we, we, our spiritual lives are even just impacted in some ways by our, by our physicality. So yeah, I think that's a huge, huge point to see. Yeah. And I, I would probably go a step further just for me and not say that our spiritual lives are impacted by our body, but that there's a, a, a deep, deep connection there. Um, that a lot of times we like to think of ourselves as kind of this um, soul inside this shell and maybe there's a little bit of an impact that our shell has on our soul but our soul is really that kind of inner part that you know lives up in our brain uh, and that is really not a christian picture of what the human person is uh kind of the big guy who started that was probably descartes um this idea that we're, we're two different things we have a body and and a soul uh, and some of that's older as well but the christian picture is just radically different 
Um, we are an insol- an embodied soul, but we are also an ensouled body. Mm-hmm. Um, that we mm-hmm. are the the fusion of of the two, and this has radical implications for how we think. Not just at the beginning of of scripture, but at the end of scripture, and not the beginning of our lives, but the end of our lives as well. We don't think that when we die, we're merely going to go to heaven and hang out there just in our souls. We don't preach that. That's not what's in the creeds. Um, the final ending point for Christians is the resurrection of the body, the reunion of the body mm-hmm. with with whatever it remains when we die. And we see this in Christ too. If it wasn't about our bodies, Christ wouldn't have risen from the dead. It would have been just irrelevant, but he came back embodied, eating fish, hanging out with his friends, bearing the marks of his life in his body. Um, but that's an essential part of what a human being is. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that sets the the creation narrative apart here, because there's in the ancient Near Eastern world in which, you know, God is doing these special things with this unique group of people. You see there's, there's other creation accounts. And one of the things that sets this apart is that creation has this, this distinct goodness about it. In fact, you know, the Babylonian accounts of creation, then, and there's, you, you can go out and read on all that stuff if you want. But I mean, one of, one of the most unique ones, you know, you've got this Babylonian God, God Marduk and Marduk, kills a demon god of sorts and and he kills it and out of the out of this demon god's blood he mixes it in with with dirt and some spit from the other gods and that is what that's what humanity's made of and humanity is even despised by the gods and so you've kind of has this you have this weird kind of hybrid of like well they're kind of mixed with the blood of gods humanity's kind of almost semi divine and yet they're despised by the gods and in the genesis account you have something much more simple you just simply have God saying as a creator, as, as, as God's prerogative, to say, I'm going to take something simple like the dust of the earth, but I'm going to breathe my life into it. I'm going to make man in my own image, and, and I'm going to create man, and I'm going to love men and women. I'm not, they're not despised. They're, there's this inherent goodness of creation. Again, we're, we're borrowing a little bit here from Genesis 1, but, but I think you see here, there's, a, there's a, an inherent goodness that is in creation, and the God, God loves us. Yeah, and that inherent goodness makes sense of the rest of Scripture. If we weren't inherently good, then what is God really that worried about? I mean, what what changed in Genesis three? Um, but Jesus came to restore both our bodies mm-hmm. and to restore that breath. The only other time we see God breathe on someone is when Jesus breathes on his disciples in the upper room, and this is the final act of restoration. He yeah. is he has resurrected the bodies and now he is breathing the new life. This is the new creation. He is the new Adam and uh, he is creating again. Well, this chapter two here focuses in, if Genesis one is kind of this poetic creation of here's what God's doing. This is the poem of creation. God is is saying, and I know some people want to bend this into a science conversation, but that just gets us kind of off track. It's not to say God didn't create it all. He did. But but how many literal days and this sort of thing, I think you know, you, you're free to believe, I think as a Christian, you're yeah. free to believe either way. You mm-hmm. can believe in a literal six days. And, and that's fine. Or you can you can go another way and say, hey, I think the, the earth's really old. I don't think Genesis is actually about is concerned with either one of those things. I, I think it's it's about God showing His sovereignty over mm-hmm. creation that it is His uh, that is His work. Uh, but Genesis one is kind of you know this big picture whole world kind of thing. Genesis two that we're we're looking at here in particular focuses more on day six, it, going back to Genesis one, day six of the creation of people. And so, CJ, what what do you when you look at this, what what do you note about the creation of, of people of, of man and woman in here? Um, I note 
two big things. The the first thing I note is that um, Adam was created and given kind of an original vocation. He was told to work. He was given the task of naming things. Um, so we see a language component in there. Um, and we see him living in nature and intending God's creation. And in some ways, this kind of connects with that embodiment conversation. There was, I think it's Maximus, some old guy said, what was unique about man kind of being that hybrid of, of spirit and um, animal, kind of the matter and the spirit, is that he is actually that conduit through which the spirit infuses, uh, which God infuses and glorifies his his own creation. We are the conduit there. And so his original job was to be that, to tend the fields, mm-hmm. um, to be that m- intermediary between God and the world so that through us, the world is blessed and grows and is ordered through uh, language and how we name things um, so that we can show the order of God. Yeah. I think one of the, it, it even says that he is to, it's, it's the, the Hebrew word there for Adam talking about his oversight of the garden is to protect, to, mm. to guard it almost. And so, you know, I think that's an original mandate to say, Hey, protect and guard what has been entrusted to you. And I think that's even for, even for M group leaders who are listening to this to say, listen, the people who have been put in, in, in my group, they're not just randomly there and Hey, I, I hope they're okay. There is a mandate to protect them and to guard them. And, and not just for you all, but but even really just for all Christians to protect and guard one another. And we do that by pointing people to God's word and say, hey, I want to protect you. And that's one of the reasons we're doing these studies this semester is because we do want you to, like Adam was called, to protect and to guard the garden. And we see as we get into Genesis 3, what he was, who he was mm-hmm. protecting and guarding the garden from, but the serpent. But I think, you know, we're called to do that. Pointing people to God's truth is one great way of protecting them, praying for them. You don't have to get freaked out about, oh my goodness, I'm going to, I don't want to be an M group leader. I don't want this charge. This is a charge for all humanity to protect and care for one another. Yeah, and another way we see Adam fail as protection is the the second big thing we see from Genesis 2 is that Adam has a family. He has people that he is um, brought together with, uh, Eve, the, the first family. So first we see farming, and second we see family. And it's from this that we see what original human creation and community looks like, and we see what good relationships look like, and we see what the good responsibilities look of a good relationship looks like. And then we see all of those things break down in Genesis 3. Yeah, I think Fred Turner, who is teaching at Synergy Sum, one of our board members at CSF, Fred Turner did this winter retreat a few years ago. And what he compared Genesis... Genesis two and three and this whole story, but but he 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 did a three part series on retreat and he just said two naked farmers. That was the whole thing he preached on at Winter Retreat in his three messages, and that was the series title, Two Naked Farmers. Basically, like, hey, what were we made for? Two, we were made for intimacy. We're made, or, or we're made for community. We're made for each other. Naked, we are made for intimacy. We're we're not made to to be just kind of at distance from people. You know, obviously, there's a unique kind of intimacy, as we'll get to in a minute, between between men and women. But but we're made for intimacy with God and others. And farming, we're actually made for work. There there is a there's a goodness to work. It's really important to see here that work enters the picture before the fall. That we have been made with a purpose. We're not just, uh, you know, just to wander about and, and do nothing throughout our days. We're actually made for a purpose. Now, sin will enter the picture and make that work difficult, and we'll struggle with that. But there's something to us. I mean, God, we are made in the image of God, and and we see that, you know, all throughout the scripture. Certainly, see it in the Genesis one account, uh, where where even the scripture says, you know, let us make, you know, let us make people in our own image. But you know, part of the image of God is that He is a creator. He creates and. 
so as his, as his people, we create, and there's lots of different ways. I think a lot of times we hear the word creation and we think, oh, well, you know, or, or be a creator. Well, I'm not a painter. I'm not a musician. I, I'm a lousy. I, I have a horrible singing voice. I have a, I, you're listening to my voice now. It's, it's barely adequate as a podcast voice, but <laughs> much, much less as a, as a singing voice. But, but creation, being able to create is, is in, uh, any number, it could be gardening. It could be, you know, uh, the way you, you know, order, you know, your, your personal space. I mean, there's lots of different ways we create that we have, God has made us to be a creator. Yeah. And I think before this gets kind of pie in the sky and I hope this hasn't been, but if, if you're wondering, well, what does this actually mean? Take a step into that vocation, you yeah. or get your students buy a plant, take care of it. If you can't, if you live in the dorm and they don't let you have bread ties in the dorm, get a fish, take care of it. Clean your room, provide order, bring order to the chaos that is your environment, but learn to grow, make something with your hands. And this might not sound like a spiritual exercise, but it deeply is because in some small way, you're living into the original vocation. And then find people to do it with, take care of people. And not for the sake of yourself, because that is not what the original family was made for, for the sake of themselves, but to procreate which for them meant, you know, having children. But for us means that there is the sake of the other is why we're living together, the sake of each other and to invite and create more people to come into that relationship. Well, yeah. And I love the simplicity of farming. I mean, if you've ever yeah. tried to grow anything, I mean, I grew up in, in rural Kentucky and so uh, we grew a farm. We, well, we did have a small farm at one point. And then uh, even after we sold that, we kept a small garden and, and I had to go out and pick the beans and break the beans and the corn and all that stuff that we grew. But, uh, but, you know, I love the simplicity of farming because I think a lot of times we look and we think, oh, creation or, or even, you know, uh, or creating or my work that I'm called to do has to be this huge, you know, culture shaping kind of deal yeah. in some large way. Like I've got to start some gigantic company. I've got to be Steve Jobs and start Apple or Bill Gates and start Microsoft or, you know, Elon Musk and try to, you know, build rocket ships to get to the moon. What, whatever it is, we look at those things and we think, okay, that's real vocation. That's real meaningful work. And what Genesis is saying is, no, tend, tend the soil, yeah. tend to the things that are nearest to you. And, and if it happens to be world shaping, if God wants to use it in that way, then great. But your call isn't to do enormous, big things. Your call is simply to be faithful in the spot that God has put you in. And I think that that it allows our vocation to be human. It allows it to be uh, our work to be things that we don't have to think about, man, am I, am I going to launch a Fortune 500 company? I'm, I'm just faithful with the things that are around me. And that is deeply, deeply God-honoring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sacramental practices of Genesis 2 are to find the little things you can do, the simple things you can do to tend your environment, to grow things, to make things, to be in community, and to take care of your body and your soul. You know, one one last thing I'd, I'd want to bring us back to that you mentioned earlier, CJ, before we launch in a little bit more into some of this conversation about marriage and men and women together, but is, is you mentioned the word language earlier, you know, you're talking mm -hmm. about uh, words that have been given to us. You know, I think that's one of the things that we, we shouldn't miss here in, in chapter two is that Humanity's been given a language. We've been given the ability to express ourselves uh, in a very unique way. Even you know, other animals apparently can communicate and, and do communicate. I think that's very clear in different ways. But humanity's been given this uh, even higher ability to uh, to interact with one another through language. And we really need to see language as a gift. I mean, one of the reasons that I actually just as a as a personal practice and self discipline is you know I, I might in in some funny way quote a movie or something 
something where I include, you know, a four letter word or something like that. But I, but I don't, I choose not to do that in my ordinary speech. If I'm frustrated or just interacting with people and, and not because I think saying a four letter word is the worst thing in the world. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. bother me uh, when other people use it. To, typically I, I'm not offended by it. I certainly don't expect non-Christians to, to, to abstain from those things because they don't have this background in, in the same way that I do. I've seen language as a gift. And mm-hmm. so one of the ways I honor that gift, just like with my kids, if I give them a gift at Christmas and they're out just, you know, beating the tar out of it, you know, their, their radio or whatever, some nice little electronic gift they get for Christmas, they're, they're mistreating the thing. I'm like, man, you all are not honoring that gift. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we should u- use our words carefully and use language carefully, mm-hmm. honor it for the gift that it is, because it is one of the most unique gifts that we have. Yeah, and I think just quickly to add, I think it's a responsibility as well. We have responsibilities with language that um, our words have shaping power, ordering power. Uh, and so we need to choose them carefully and craft them carefully. C.S. Lewis in the, I think it was in the screw tape letters said at the bottom, every ideal of, of style and by style, he means how we speak and what uh, the, the, the way we speak dictates not only how we should say things, but what sorts of things we may say. Mm-hmm. And by that, he means when you're, when you're loose and irresponsible with your language, you actually become loose and irresponsible with your thinking and mm-hmm. loose and irresponsible with your life. And yeah. you see these interesting, great writers, a lot of them say something similar. We need to take seriously how we speak, how we think, because that actually shapes in a, in a fundamental way who we are. Yeah. I think that, you know, the whole PC, uh, you know, our PC culture and, and the way we're you know, the, it tells us to use language. I do think they're actually on to an interesting insight mm-hmm. here that that the way we use language is is important. Though I think the way they go about it and kind of some of the ends mm-hmm. they get to through that are, are misguided. But nonetheless, I do think that there is an, an insight there. Yeah, insight without excess probably the best. Let's talk a little bit about marriage, obviously, and in relationships, and and Adam and Eve. This is uh, you know such a key thing. Relationships obviously are so important, and particularly this this unique relationship of man and woman. Yeah, uh, I said two things popped out of Genesis two. The first was kind of that embodiment uh, and the the vocation that goes with it, and the second one's about embody, embodiment too. But it's the the relationships here, the the family, farming, family faithfulness. This is the family part. And we see God recognize that it's not good for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so he creates for Adam, Eve. Uh, And we see some really interesting things happen here that you can read a lot into. I read a lot into. First, Eve is kind of the peak of creation for me. She's Mm -hmm. the last thing God creates. For me, like... Creation gets more and more beautiful the further and further it goes. And we think that man's the last thing created. You're talking about Genesis 1. Genesis 1, yeah. Yeah. But... um, uh, Eve's actually the last thing God creates. She's kind of the peak of his creation. Uh, and we see that God, when he makes her, he doesn't do it the same way as, as he makes Adam, but there's uh, lessons we can learn in how she is created um, from Adam. We don't see him take a piece of Adam's head, and we don't see him take a piece of Adam's foot. We see him take a a rib out of Adam's side. He doesn't take the head so that she rules over him and he doesn't take the foot so that he stomps on her and treads on her and rules over her. But we see him take the rib from beside so that they can stand beside each other and and come together. And really it takes two to do the job that God gave them to do, which was to create, to procreate. Um, it takes two to do that tango. Uh, and I think there's in important Mm -hmm. lessons that we learn from Mm -hmm. Genesis 2 about what the original relationship looks like. It's not one of dominance and, you know, subjection um, or subjugation, but it's one of uh, a mutual equality of love where each 
uh, stands beside the other and takes care of them. Yeah, even that Hebrew word "ezer," which is what gets translated as "helper," in other in other contexts, that that word, which transliterated in English, would be "ezer." Ezer, ezer uh, actually, in other contexts in the Bible, gets translated as the word, especially gets used in military context of ally. That it means you're an ally, you're a partner. Uh, it's not a kind of an over helper, like you're you're the valet or whatever to someone else. It's it's actually someone who would stand beside them as an equal, as an as an ally. And so even though I, I think you know Christians differ on on this viewpoint about um, you know men and women's roles and how they interact, uh, I, I think there's a strong case to be made. Certainly, just even a biological level that we are complementary of each other. Oh, yeah. That we we are we're not. We're not the same. There's differences uh, in in how we're made, but that we are we're designed to complement each other. I mean, humanity doesn't flourish. Humanity doesn't continue to mm-hmm. exist without uh, men's role in in the reproductive mm-hmm. process, and certainly you know w- women's role mm-hmm. in in the reproductive process. And even when you get to the point of strength, and you think of the strength of women, and and you know, I think one of the things culturally misunderstand is we've we've defined strength in really weird ways, and and particularly they only get defined in masculine ways. And again, this is such a mm-hmm. such a longer conversation. But, but you know, you think about uh, just women's strength, like the ferocity of a mother. Uh, no one wants to mess with a mo- with a child if they see a mother coming, because they know that that woman's strength has mm-hmm. a has a uniqueness to it. And I think about child rearing. I mean, my wife was in the I think the most Shelby ever threw up was twenty five times in one night, and mm-hmm. was in the hospital all three pregnancies. I threw up once, and I'm mm-hmm. an absolute baby, and, yeah. and and you know, I'm laid up in bed. But but I watch Shelby's strength to to do mm-hmm. that, and and I just see that in in. In this creation account, men and women are equal, but they are, uh, they're a little different. Yeah. And the last thing I'd say about the helper thing, because I think a lot of, a lot gets made out of that word. Um, in Hebrews 13, the, the Lord is called our helper. And so mm-hmm. if this implies some sort of the, the helper is underfoot, um, then that would, this essential hierarchy would place God underneath us. And even if there was an essential hierarchy embedded in that term somewhere, our entire faith is about upending the hierarchies. So that he who is underfoot is most exalted. He who is made low will be raised high. Um, and so I think making a lot out of this word helper uh, in terms of that means the man must stand on top of the woman, uh, I think is just not very uh, good reading. Well, and that would be really uncomfortable <laughs> too, for sure, standing on on her. But hey, let's let's move real quick. There's just so much in there. I mean, we could do a whole series of podcasts just on these. Again, that's why I said earlier, you read this Genesis 1 through 3 uh, once a month because it's so foundational. But but also, the, I, I want to make sure we hit at the end of 2 there, the relational structure that we're giving is there's three elements to this kind of this marriage and this union. It's You could sum it up by saying it's leaving, weaving, cleaving. You, you leave the parents, you, you create a new fundamental loyalty to where you are starting this new family with, with your husband. There is a weaving together. There's a vow. There's a commitment. You, your lives are literally interwoven together by, by a covenant before God. And there's, you know, the psychological relational development, uh, you know, uh, pieces of all that of, you know, you're getting to know this person and your two lives are committed to one another. And only then is it cleaving only then to the two bodies come together. That's so countercultural to what we hear to where we just say, hey, we'll just go ahead and cleave and go ahead and, and do that and skip the other part. And if you want to come back later and maybe weave together and leave your parents, then fine, do that. But we see, and we see this, we'll see this right now as we're going to jump in very quickly into Genesis 3. We see that whenever we skip the order of God, whenever God's order gets gets undone, that that chaos ensues. And, and indeed, more than just chaos, death comes. And so leaving, weaving, cleaving is super important to see, and it's meant to go in that particular order. But CJ, let, 
let's go. I know we've only got a few minutes here. Let's jump uh, Genesis 3. Give us a couple of quick insights in Genesis 3. I'd say the first big insight for me on Genesis 3 here is uh, we see the problem here and we see the final enemy. For me, what I see is the dominant theme in scripture, and I think you'd agree with me here, Brian, is um, not merely us offending God and having to have that offense fixed, but the entering of death into the picture. That in Genesis 2, we see all of this life and death imagery, the breath of life. He's a living being. You're growing in the garden, the tree of life, uh, and that eating of the fruit brings death. Uh, And we see death enter the picture here. And that's Mm -hmm. the lie that the serpent gives too. You won't die. And in a very literal sense, right that moment, they didn't die, but they died spiritually. And I think the New Testament really brings us home and showing that, yeah, this is Mm -hmm. the final enemy. Mm -hmm. Paul calls death in 1 Mm -hmm. Corinthians 13 or 15, death is the final enemy. And then Christ came to remove the fear of death by defeating the master of death. That's Hebrews 2. And that knowing God is eternal life, John 17. And then finally, Mm -hmm. Jesus himself, this is why he came. John 10, 10, I came to give life. And then the most famous passage of scripture in all of, or in all of scripture, John 3, 16, we think of this and we don't actually think of what it says. He came to give us everlasting life. Yeah. Um, That is the message. Mm -hmm. Life versus death. Yeah. Well, and and you even left off that last part of John 10, 10, Jesus says, have come that you'd have life and life to the full, not just a halfway kind of life, but life to the full. And so, yeah, I think, I think the ultimate dividing line, and I'd been kind of, I'd had this gut sensing for a while and I ran into an old seminary professor of mine. He was a biblical studies professor and he said, I'm working on a new book project and I asked him what it was about. And he said, yeah, I'm working on that the central axis on which everything else turns mm-hmm. in the scripture is life and death. I, so. I mean, I mean, you see Genesis, Genesis here. I mean, it's about God creating, bringing life into the world in all its different dimensions. And now in Genesis three, death enters in. And now we're on this concentrate. Everything else is life and death. And, and one of the things I think we, I'd even want us to see, I know we look at, uh, you know, the, the, the rules of scripture, so to speak. And we go, wow, you know, what, what, are, what's all this about? Well, it's about if we follow God's way, it leads to more life. Mm-hmm. If we don't, it, it leads to death. And, on those rules too, I think one of the things that we ought to see in Genesis 3 is that God gives us so many yeses. There are so many different things that God says, yes, go do this. Yes, you know, play with the animals. Yes, enjoy creation. Yes, enjoy this woman that mm-hmm. I have given you as your partner. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. There's one no, one no. But we we get that backwards. We think of God as a God of no's. Yeah. And some of those no's now come because of the fall. But God is ultimately about yes. God is yes to life. The no's are only there because God is against death. Yeah. And, and the, the Christian life is one devoted to life. And we live in a culture of death. We live in a, a culture that's afraid of death because we never talk about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But we also live in a culture obsessed with death. What is every single TV show about? What is every Law & Order episode about? Someone dying, murder mysteries. We're afraid of death. We're obsessed with death. And we're a culture of death. But fundamentally, our faith is a culture of life and a, a faith of life. Well, we're trying to keep these at 30 minutes. Yep. So give us a couple of a couple last quick insights. I'd say the last big thing you need to get out of Genesis 3 is the first fruits of the gospel are here. The first promise of the gospel and the first enacting of the gospel happens in Genesis 3. We obsess so much about the fall that I think it's easy to miss that God is already promising to fix us. Life is already being promised here in three important ways. The first one is the obvious one where Christ promises that the descendants of Adam and Eve, that one of them would stomp on the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would defeat death. Mm-hmm. So there's a promise of the, the enemy being defeated. And then second, God covers their nakedness. 
He -hmm. clothes them. And that's a theme taken up in the New Testament. Christ promises to clothe us in his righteousness. And then finally, we do see in that clothing, the shedding of blood. He clothes them in animals. The first shedding of blood happens in response to our sin and our death. Death brought death, but that also promises life in the future fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, you see God's his love on display. You see his uh, who he is and, and it, because again, much like, you know, the the Luke 15 passage we talked about that the father even though the son goes out and dishonors the father, when he comes back the father still mm-hmm. has love for him and still cares and still provides a robe for him, mm-hmm. a ring for him and a you know dignity for him. God does this here. He he doesn't just kill them and say, "Hey, you've messed up my created mm-hmm. order." He says, "Okay, this is where we are. Now now let's work to restore mm-hmm. this." And the rest of the Bible is about the rest restoration of bringing us back into this right relationship with God. God provides for them. Yeah. The rest of the Bible is the outworking of that initial promise of the clothing and the, the bloodshed and Christ coming to, to stomp on the serpent. Yeah, all of this all of this spins on the turn to self. I think a couple of weeks back, Blake was talking about the self-curvature, that that is what sin is. It's turning in on yourself. It's turning away from God. And you just see, you see humanity turning to talk uh, about God, but not not talk with God and to be intimate with Him. They, they want knowledge. They want different things because they want it. And, and you know, I think they, they get to see by aesthetics of, oh, well, this looks good, or this feels good, or this is going to taste good. But but, but that that's not weird to trust God, not to necessarily look at something and go, oh, well, it, it's appealing to my eye. And so many of our choices in life we do because we think, oh, this image, I'm going to look at that. This is going to give me a certain kind of pleasure. But this is not, aesthetics are not the ultimate God, uh, you know, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of something looks good. So therefore, or it feels good. Therefore, it is good. Uh, and I do think, I think, again, we don't want to miss that nakedness here. Shame. Shame is actually a gift here because it lets us know something is wrong. Something, something is not right. And now we live east of Eden to quote John Steinbeck uh, in his famous novel. So, yep. CJ, thanks a ton for being yeah, thanks, for having me. thanks a ton for being here. I hope this has been helpful for you all in your conversations, in your groups. There is so much here that we haven't even begun to touch on, but hopefully this launches you out into great conversations that produce people who want to follow Jesus. 